Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Sahra Ali, a writer and diversity and equity consultant. I first became aware of Sahra after reading her piece in Belt magazine. The essay, called Coming of Age Between Somalia and Columbus, talks about what it was like for her to grow up as an immigrant Somali Muslim in the Midwest, and how she, quote, forged an American identity within the parameters of her Somali upbringing. Sahra left Ohio in 2016 and has since traveled the world to become what she describes as a nomadic writer, hiker, thinker, and everything else in between. She's been published in places like Reader's Digest, Outside Magazine, and BestDamnWriting.com. I asked Sahra to share a little bit about what it was like for her to come to the States as an eight-year-old immigrant. Um, yes, let's see. So it was 1996. I wish I could remember the season. Um, <laughs> so we had, you know, I was coming from a really small village in um in the Northeast region of Somalia and had never been to a big city, uh, except for our time in, in, we had a short stint in uh, Djibouti uh, where I was introduced to electricity for the first time. My first introduction to the US, I believe we landed in New York city and we lived in Jersey city. And my dad had, he had been in the States. I wanna say, well, he actually left while just shortly after I was conceived. So he was there for about eight years um, and he was working as a janitor in Penn Station um, and lived in Jersey City. And yeah, I mean, it was it was wild. It was wild. It's it's such a I mean, I guess looking back to to be introduced to the U.S. by way of New York City is such a uh, incredible and riching and also just stark introduction, uh, you know, like big buildings and, you know, people that look like me, but aren't, you know, yeah, sure. They're not, um, they're, they're, they're not, you know, they're not from Somalia. In fact, we actually, there was only one other Somali family that we knew in Jersey city. We, you know, Muslims band together, um, in, in the tri-state area. And so most of my Muslim upbringing were, you know, going to, um, on the weekends, we went to Quran school um, and Arabic school, uh, and it was mainly Palestinians. All our teachers were called them Philistine. It took me a long time to even say the word Palestine. I didn't. <laughs> Why is that? 
Um, well, just because like Palestinians call themselves Philistine. Uh, so like it wasn't, you know, it was, it, it's crazy. I mean, like it was, I was being introduced to all these different cultures and different kinds of Muslims, Yeah. which, you know, like all you know is that you're wearing the hijab and you're reciting the same Quran. Like that's all, you know. Um, so it was, you know, it, it was, it really was a melting pot. I mean, we got our halal meat from this little in, Indian square in Jersey city, you know? So like we were, um, mingling with, um, you know, Muslims that were Hindi, you know, Arabic speakers, Black Muslims, I mean, you name it. And it didn't really hit me until after we left Jersey City, like maybe, yeah, I was 13 after 9-11, and then went to Ohio, and then saw that, oh, okay, like, Jersey City and New York City are completely different than uh, suddenly, suddenly we were surrounded by Muslims, Somalis, Somalis um, in Ohio. And it was like, oh, I'm not even used to my own people. Oh, well. that's interesting. Yeah, it was it was just wild. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's kind of like very storybook-ish um, in the way that it was just full on immersion. I think if we would have settled in Columbus, Ohio, instead of Jersey City, New Jersey, it would have been totally different. Okay, well, uh, maybe let's... Uh talk about the transition from New York to Columbus, Ohio. Mm. And what was that like for you? What, why did your family move there? And then, yeah, what, what was your experience like there when you first arrived there? I think dad was done with New York and 9-11 really, really changed things. Um, I don't know how much my father, I'm sure that he saw, he saw a lot and I'm sure that he was discriminated against, but it's a little bit harder to to say to say what his experience is because for us like we wore the hijab so we saw the mm. discrimination you know like we saw yeah. how people looked at us on the train and like we saw how we went from children who you know used to go and go to the corner stores or take the train to go see my dad um, all of that just kind of just changed overnight and all of a sudden like we weren't really children and I remember all of a sudden my mother would be like going with us to the mall or going with us to the store or, you know, to protect you. Yeah. Which in the nineties, like, you know, kids were on the train. Like it didn't matter. Like my brother used to sell candy on the train. Like <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was really, it was very safe. Like it felt safe, but I think, you know, I think dad was done with that. And he also really wanted to be around Somalis. I think that was really important for him. Okay which is ironic because we lived in the suburbs. So um, he saw Somalis, but uh, we didn't until, until much later. We moved to Ohio in 2002, summer of 2002. And the first couple of years, we kind of lived in the suburbs. He was always, his business was always in the north side of Columbus, which was where most of the Somalis were. Um, so my younger siblings interacted more with the Somali community. That's fascinating. And we did. Like yeah. my sister and I were raising them and then we went off to college and 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 I went to basically an all white, you know, university in in Appalachia and she was at OSU just grinding. You know, so there wasn't, you know, whereas like my my siblings all of their friends are Somalis. You know, yeah, they're yeah. 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 Do you, do you regret that you don't have more of a connection to the Somali community? And I don't know, how has that changed as, as you've gotten older? Mm, 
I wouldn't say I regret it. Um, so I do have some connection. I had friends um, in, in high school. I had a couple of girls um, that I was friends with that were Somali. And I know, and also we went to, we went to Islamic school then too. And we, we did encounter Somalis in, in, in Islamic school, but we, you know, then we'd go back home to our little suburban, you know, place. And, you know, and again, we weren't social kids. Like my sister and I weren't social because we had a lot of responsibility, but we know the language we're fluent. And, you know, um, I, I wouldn't say I regret it. The thing is like, I, you know, as I got older, I started to realize that I was not traditionally Somali um, and all the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't really do it within the Somali community because it wouldn't it wouldn't be productive. It just wouldn't take off. Like I wanted L- to like travel. what? Yeah, okay, I wanted sorry. to travel. I wanted to write. You know, I wanted to um, just experiment with like. Um, not wearing the hijab, which which I don't, you know, and just like I like I really wanted to go into a self discovery that I the my Somali culture would not it couldn't happen within those parameters. Yeah. So I had to always be strategic. It's almost like it, it would be inappropriate for me to go to a Somali mall, you know, dressed very Americanized and talk about you know, going hiking and, you know, talk about, you know, um, traveling solo as a woman. Like it just, so I I was always teasing that line. I mean, even till this day, when I go back home to Columbus, I make sure I take my scarf with me. So at least my parents are, you know, just out of respect. Um, So yeah, I mean, I I never wanted to ruffle any feathers. I always wanted to take a diplomatic approach into my self-discovery. Yeah. You you wrote in the... um the belt magazine, which I, I really love the article and we'll share it with all of our listeners and in, in the show notes, but you wrote that you, when you arrived there, you became Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was that? Sarah before that. Oh, okay. I was Sarah. I was Sarah. The moment that I, the moment that I realized um, that Americans had a hard time saying my name, I like, they, they called me Sarah. And I just never corrected it because it just sounded, you know, like at the time I was assimilating. When I went to Columbus, Ohio, I, I was in sixth grade and my sister and I both skipped the grade. So I went to I went to eighth. Poor thing went to straight high school. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I feel for her. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to go from seventh grade to, you know, to a high school in a completely, you know, in the Midwest. Um, right. But yeah, I, I was Sarah that whole time. I was Sarah from the time I was maybe 11, 12 to when did I start? I think I was like 20. I'm so embarrassed to say it until I was 27 and I'll be 32 this year. So like, that's pretty wild. Well, what did that mean to you? And uh, you also wrote that your family started calling you Sarah as well. Mm-hmm. My, I still have to correct my older sister all the time. It, it's wild. So her, her, she, her name is a little is a. It's not as hard. It's Hawa H A W A. Um, so she's never really. I mean, I mean, she did. People did call her. I I used to call her all kinds of things. Um, I used to call her Howard, but that was just <laughs> the teaser. Yeah. Yeah, but um, she yeah she always called like even to like when we have a conversation she'll she'll say. She's like, oh no, Sarah. And I'm like, stop calling me that. I'm like, you know, like my writing's out there. Like I I I can't, like, I like, what does it look like if my family's calling me Sarah? I'm like, stop calling me Sarah. She's like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, she, yeah. she 
appeases me. Um, but yeah, they they got on board. And what's interesting is Sarah or Sahra, my dad named me Sahra. So that's not even my real name. Da, da, da. No, <laughs> full school, yeah. That's not even my name. My mom named me uh, a different name, Ifrah, Ifrah, which means happy in um so the story is dad I, like so i was conceived and then i was born and i think dad did see me before i was um before he left um i think i was a couple months old and then mom named me Ifrah, and then we came to the u.s and dad was like my daughter like you know he had you know he, <laughs> technically you know he 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 was responsible for the documents so excuse me he said uh her name is Sahra so there's always been a so at home I'm known as Ifrah my my immediate family oh amazing and then you know what's really fascinating is so many people in my past still know me as Sarah I just don't really talk to them sure like if I think of like the first guy I dated he knew me as Sarah for like years and he probably still knows me as Sarah yeah it's it's interesting you know I I think I struggle with this well struggle is the wrong word but for for me you know, at home, I'm Assad and at, at work or, you know, to my friends, uh, I'm Assad and even to my wife, I'm Assad, you know, and it's, it's really interesting. Um, I guess for, for you, how did, what, what is the identity of Sahra versus Sarah? What, I guess, what, what was the reason for calling yourself Sarah or, or sticking with it? And how's, how is that Sarah different from who you are now? I think our names are really, really important. I think the way what people call you is important. And I think when I was Sarah, I, I was a persona. I wasn't really myself, right? Because first of all, like I'm, you know, Sahara is like, you can hear it. You know that it's not American, you know, you know, and most Sarahs, I think maybe 99% Sarahs I met are white. So it's like, e- even in, you know, even in New York City, I, I remember, you know, when I started correcting my name uh, a few years ago, uh, this guy that I knew um, who in, in New York, you know, he he would say, oh, yeah, no, you should definitely call yourself Sahara. He's like, you're not, you know, and he was Jewish. And he was like, you know, you're not a Jewish girl from Long Island. <laughs> you know, like to him, like that's what Sarah was. Right. right, right. Um, so it's like it, it, it's I think it's deeper. I think once I started saying Sahara, I, I, I gave myself just permission to like really think about who made me and what made me, you know, like it's, you know, and everyone in my family can stand behind their name and I've never been able to stand behind my name. Um, and I think that, especially for me, cause I'm a thinker, I'm always thinking. So just, and I'm always trying to like get at the truth and it takes me a long, long time to investigate things. And it just didn't make any sense that I was focusing on investigating so many other, you know, languages and words and, you know, and not myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. You wrote that I did not know the trauma that I ignored by burying the implications of my Muslim name. Mm. What was some of that trauma? I think a lot of the trauma was probably around 9-11. I didn't really process it until much later. And also, you know, I didn't see a lot of direct, you know, trauma and war um, in Somalia, but it was always going on, especially when I was, you know, I was born in 89 and the war started shortly after that. 
Um, so I, I really quite literally am, you know, like a war baby. But I think, it, yeah, I think it was 9-11. I mean, it, it just goes to show you that psychologically we we really do repress and, and just to try to get by. And it's crazy that when we got to when we got to Ohio, I had to let go of 9-11. I, had to, I never thought of 9-11 again. And, and, and in that way, I kind of broke off from, you know, the way that the rest of the U.S. views 9-11 because I, like, my experience of 9-11 was really contentious and was really traumatic, but I was young. Also, you know, Somali culture, you know, where, and I'm actually, I'm investigating this a lot, meditating on this a lot for my writing um, and even my DEI stuff these days, which is like, you know, what what is in your history? I mean, Somalia has, you know, been in conflict for a very, very long time, and it has its own traumas. And we're very adaptable people, but we have a hard time assimilating um, because we're, we're constantly just focused on survival. And like that kind of stuff psychologically stays with you. As I look back, I think that it was a natural, almost inherited psychological response for me to get away from 9-11 mentally to kind of go on and then not confront the actual um, event. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't like disassociation because I, you know, I think as a human being, I remembered it. Like I remember it as a, um, as, as something that happened, but. I, I did not connect with it. And it's really, and that was on purpose. That was by design. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I write in the piece that it wasn't until I heard a country song, you know, that was alluding to it um, when I was like 20, 21 years old. And all of a sudden it was like, oh no, I was there. Oh no, we were, you know, we were affected. Um, and that, that was very painful. Like that's really unfortunate. More with my conversation with Sahra Ali coming up after the break. This is American Muslim Project. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is writer Sahra Ali. Her most recent piece is in Belt magazine and talks about her experience as a Somali-American Muslim growing up in the Midwest. She talked to me about what it was like to have a religious upbringing. You know, we we went to Islamic school, um, which consisted of, you know, Arabic courses and Quran, memorizing the Quran. And I was actually really good at it. Um, My parents parents actually thought that I was going to be a... Obviously, I couldn't be a, you know, a sheikh or anything, but um, due to, you know, it's not really a lot of women that are doing that. But they they thought I was going to be this, you know, religious, very Muslim scholar who... Is that what I you mean, wanted to be? Um, not really. I like, I, I mean, I was, I used to win Quran competitions. Oh, amazing. Because I, yeah, well, because I liked memorizing and I liked yeah. language. It wasn't because I was competitive at all, because I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself 
competitive um, unless I'm competing with myself. Um, but yeah, they just thought that, oh, you know, like in, 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 at least in our Muslim culture in Somalia, how Muslim you are is really determined by like your performance of it. Right. So oh, that's great. wearing hijab and, you know, if you're um, doing traditional things and if you know the Quran and if you know the backstories and, you know, the prophets, like all of that kind of legitimizes you, you know, like that's a, that's a very Muslim person. Yeah. Wait, can, uh, you, can you, can you, because I've never been to a, a competition like this. Can you kind of <laughs> set the stage for us? Well, is this at the mosque and how yeah. many people are competing and, you know, um, how, how long was your recitation? Um, well, it depends, right? So they had it in different categories because, you know, the Quran is very long, which I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I've never finished it, although I do, I do want to, um, you know, finish it, which is so interesting. So like we were reciting, you know, I was really young. I was probably, this was maybe between, I don't know, 10 and 13 or something. Um, and we went to Islamic school every weekend. So think of it as like Bible study, right? So they, they, they would have these competitions for depending on whatever chapter you were in. And if you, you know, if you did really well, there's probably, I don't know, like maybe 30, 30 of us, not the whole competition, but just like together. Um, and like we were, I mean, we didn't really take it seriously. I mean, we were kids, you know, like yeah. I remember. I remember we used to make fun of the certain words, like the accent. We used to make fun of like the accent of, you know, our teacher. You know, she would try to like teach us uh, what the word peach is in Arabic and um, Arabic. And and we like it sounded like she was saying the B word. So we would make fun. Like we were kids, you know, like we we were not, you know. So to the extent that I took the competition seriously was just I was just good at it. So. Um, and, and there was always like, you know, a monetary reward. And I wanted like to buy. Monetary reward. Oh, well, what was the, what, how much? <laughs> the most I ever made in my Quran memorizing career was um, $125. That's which a lot of money. Lot, which yeah. is a lot. And I split it with my sister and we went, we went shopping for, for Eid clothes. I remember. That's amazing. That's great. <laughs> I just, you know, you, the, you brought back the memory of when we would, go to um, Sunday school, uh, we still quote a lot of our, the way that some of our teachers used to say different words. Uh, my friends and I still on text will we'll quote various teachers. It's so funny. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, that was our lives, right? I mean, like, you know, you right. go to school for five days a week and, you know, five days a week, I was trying to be the best that I could be um, assimilating and learning English. And then, you know, the other two days, our parents made us go. Um, because that was kind of like the biggest continuity, right? I mean, everything was so new to us. So it was, you know, we went to Islamic school um, in in Somalia. We actually went to Islamic school uh, before. I don't think we ever actually went to school, school. Like I, I think we learned like the outfit. No, that's a lie. We didn't. We didn't because I never learned how to read and write in Somali until I... I think I was 16. I taught myself. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So, so uh, English was the first language I learned to read and write and speak. That's fascinating. And, yeah. It, it's wild. And then, and then Arabic was the first language I learned to read and write in. And then Somali was the language that I learned to, you know, to, to just speak socially. Sure. Yeah. So it was like, there was always things happening. 
Yeah, at home, I imagine you're speaking Somali. Mm-hmm. In school, mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. And then on the weekends, you're learning Arabic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I didn't think about it. I mean, I guess you don't think about it when you're younger. Yeah. You don't think about how all these things are touching you. Um, but then as you get older, you start to realize, well, why do I like this? Where did that come from? You know, and you're kind of piecing it together, especially as a writer. So, yeah. You you mentioned earlier that your first yeah your first foray into poetry was when you were memorizing the Quran. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about how that you know that that the Quran is is so poetic? It is. It is. It's so beautiful. Arabic is so beautiful. You know, I I was just having a conversation with my friend about this. I think you know it's it's interesting when you don't have a formal education, but you start memorizing something. Like you start to realize just how powerful that is, right? Um, if you think of like really uh, great orators and, and and writers of either our time or before our time, uh, you know, someone like James Baldwin, right? Um, someone like Mar- Marcus Garvey. Um, like it, it's, it, you know, you start to realize, well, how did these people learn to speak so well? How do they, and it's like you, when you realize that, you know, uh, James Baldwin started um, as a kid preacher, <laughs> like that's that's crazy, right? I mean, and and all of that is it is a performance. It is memorization. It it starts there. Um and and the Quran really really got me into like this just a way of approaching learning that was just judgment free. You know, like I all I I didn't know what I was reading. So like, and you're being indoctrined and you don't even know it. You're just yeah. reading. And the Quran sounds beautiful. I mean, if, you know, if you talk to people who are not Muslim, who go to Muslim countries and they hear the Adhan, they're always like, oh, like it's, it's my favorite time of the day. You know, when I, when I hear that. The and call to prayer. The call to prayer. And, and, and it's just so fascinating to me because I don't understand how the same way that you know, Shakespeare is important to me the same way that, you know, um, Langston Hughes is important to me the same way that Toni Morrison, all these people that, you know, I, I, I look at all these people that I like that. It's crazy to me that Islam, you know, there, what there's over a billion, there's over a billion Muslims. Close to two, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's so wild that it has not culturally caught on like the, like, the fact that no one, very few people know, uh, you know, a surah or know the call to prayer, even though we like, I know amazing grace. I have no business knowing amazing grace. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's but all ingrained in us, right? Exactly. I know certain, you know, Christian gospels. I know, you know, certain Japanese uh, chants, you know? So it's like how, like, it is, it's absolutely beautiful. And, and you know, they, they I don't know if you call it singing, would you call it singing, like singing the Quran? You know, like how they they have those. Um, yeah, I, those I, I guess I would just say reciting, but yeah, singing is probably an accurate. It sounds word. like it, right? Yeah, like right. People who really, you know, um, w- when they're leading, you know, read prayer, right? And it's like you get, you know, you get the best of the best up there, and they're just like really showing off with their beautiful crisp voice. It's it's amazing. It's it's um, it's joyful. It's very joyful. And I just don't understand how, you know, we're supposed to, 
as immigrants um, and as, you know, Muslims, we're supposed to be all about Merry Christmas and jingle bells and know all of that. And yet, you know, this beautiful poetry is out there in the form of the Quran and um, and, and people who study it, you know, academics and um, they, 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 they definitely speak to it. They speak to, oh, it is a really beautiful, unifying, communal, joyful um, experience uh, to witness. And I, I'm, I'm really in a process of like as I write and as my writing gets out there, I'm trying to uh, pay homage to, well, you know, I didn't conceive of this on my own. Will you recite some for us? Mm, I hope I don't mess it up. <laughs> if you mess it up, you can do it again, and nobody will ever know. <laughs> no, you'll know. Um, but can, wait, like, do you do you you know you know the the fatha, right? I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. let's see if no. I remember. I, I mean, I yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not um, a religious Muslim. I will say. which is hilarious right like that's another thing too like I'm not you know I was listening I listened to um your podcast uh, a few episodes and there was this I think it was was it um Yasmin yeah 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 yeah. yeah. um and 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 she was you know how she was talking about um how she's so connected to you know her traditional Muslim family um and and she's not like that at all um, but I'm, I'm the same exact way. Like I, you know, Ramadan's coming up. Like I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I can't say that I'm, you know, deeply religious or deeply right. practicing, but you know, it's, it's ingrained. It's, and I appreciate it. Um, well, I think so, that's one yeah. of the things that I write, like about your writing is that I think that you have expressed um, in many ways uh, the way that I feel, you know, as, mm-hmm. as a quote unquote, you know, Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's why I appreciate, you know, why I wanted you on the show. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how much it's resonated with people. It's resonated with so many different kinds of Muslims, like black, like I've had, you know, black Muslims reach out to me, you reached out to me, like, it, and even just even non Muslims, like, just seeing, and I think that's like the most Muslim piece I've ever written. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so let's see. Um, so this is the surah that we say, um, you know, just at the start of every prayer, you start with this one, right? And I think it's the first surah. Um, okay, let's see. Let me get into poetry mode. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahir Rabbil Alameen. Ar Rahmanir Rahim. Malikiyomiddin. Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'een. Ihdina surat al mustaqeen. Sirat al-Ladina al-Amta alayhim qayrul maqdubi alayhim waladhaleen. And as you know, everyone says afterwards. Ameen. Ameen. <laughs> it's just so beautiful. It's so, so beautiful. Oh, yeah. So watching you, you, you were kind of like, like <laughs> you, I could tell that you were feeling it, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. Which is, um, you know. Um, which is interesting, right? Because when I, uh, I, I was telling you earlier about, about um, how much I love Shakespeare and uh, um, how, like, when I, was, when I was 16, I think a lot of people have experiences where they have a teacher um, in school that makes them recite. It's another reciting thing, right, that they make you memorize. <laughs> um, and they made, us, they made us memorize a sonnet um, 
and it was uh, it was Sonnet One Sixteen. And um, if you don't mind, I'll, I, I can I can recite it. Please. I, I I feel the same. I feel like that's where my writing lives. That's where my assimilation lives. It's it lives in poetry, whether it is you know the Quran, um, whether it is you know. Um, or whether it's Shakespeare and, you know, everything else in between. Um, so Sonnet 116. Mm. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no, it is an ever fixed moment that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose words unknown, although his height be taken. Love is not a time's fool, though rosy lips within his bending sickle compass come. Love alters, not with his brief hours or weeks, but bears it out to the edge of doom. If this be error upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. God, I hope I got that right. <laughs> it sounded right to me. <laughs> and it sounded beautiful again. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I hope I got that right. <laughs> Shakespeare lovers might, might you know, come after me if I don't. And I work yeah. at, a, you know, a humanities. I work at a cultural organization in, in Vermont. So um, they're going to kick they're, you up. Yeah, they're really, <laughs> we're all really into Shakespeare. So uh well i just want to thank you so much for joining the show it's been really just great chatting with you and getting to know you and i look forward to uh reading your future writing and your book of poetry thank you so much for joining american muslim project thank you so much for having me my conversation with sahara was recorded in march of 2021 you can find out more about her via her website saharaali.com we'll have a link to that in the show notes Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would be very helpful. And if you have a chance, maybe even tell a friend about what we're doing here. We'd be super grateful for that as well. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Mark Ganado, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme music. You can check us out online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Project.com.